Beneath the dark trees of polygon woods near Ypres, smashed concrete and undulating ground testifies to the four years of fighting that took place here during the Great War. In its far corner, the Black Watch made their stand in 1914, and beyond in a river valley. What did the veterans who fought through that hellish nightmare of 1917 make of their experiences along the Reutelbeek? We've returned to Flanders this week, and we're walking down an almost straight road from the village of Zonnebeek towards the tip of an area of large woodlands just beyond that village. When we walk ground like this around the city of Ypres and we look into these fields, it's a complex battlefield in many ways because every field tells almost every year of the four years of war that took place here between 1914 and 1918. So there's often a lot to take in. In that area of woodland ahead of us, the dark trees of what is polygon wood is very typical of that experience on battlefields like this. So during the course of this week's walk, we're going to take in many aspects of the four years of conflict in Flanders during the Great War. And we'll follow that road as it bends round and reaches that tip of polygon wood some of the trees here have been cleared and we can see a large monument which we'll come to shortly. But we'll walk a little further down this road and on our right is the entrance to the first of the military cemeteries that we'll see on this walk, Polygon Wood Cemetery. The original cemetery register for this cemetery says that it's an irregular frontline cemetery. And it's not just irregular in terms of the scattered nature of the burials that is in it, but the shape of the actual cemetery. If you stand back a little bit and look, you can see that the walls of the cemetery are a polygon shape to reflect the shape of the wood from which the cemetery takes its name. The cemetery register says that the first burials were made here in August 1917 during the Third Battle of Ypres, what is often referred to as the Battle of Passchendaele. But if that's true, they must have been the burials of unknown soldiers because the first named burial in this cemetery dates from November 1917 and it largely covers a period from... December 1917 through to March of 1918, outside the period of the great battles around Ypres during the First World War. It's a cemetery that as you begin to walk amongst the graves, you quickly see is dominated by New Zealand burials from the New Zealand Division who held this part of the line for much of those quiet months of the winter of 1917-18. At that time, they took part in a small-scale action at Polderhurk Chateau, just on the other side of Polygon Wood, and we'll finish our walk there and discover more about that battle shortly. But the cemetery has also got a plot of graves from the 49th West Riding Division. This was a Yorkshire Territorial Division that had a long history of serving at Ypres in the First World War, both in the quiet periods between the Second and Third Battles of Ypres, during the fighting at Third Epe itself, and then again here during that cold winter of 1917-18. They had relieved the New Zealanders in the Polderhurk sector, a sector that was marked on their maps with the name Joppa, and it was an outpost line that they took over from the Kiwis, no fixed positions really. It was the result of the tail end of the Third Battle of Epe, and the lines here were somewhat confused and would remain confused really until the following year. And as you wander around, one of the graves that you almost immediately notice is that of 2nd Lieutenant John Jackson Lowe, MCMM, of the Royal Engineers. 
He was killed on the 3rd of December 1917, which was the date of the attack by the New Zealanders on the Polderhirk Chateau. And he was with the Royal Engineers rather than the Royal New Zealand Engineers because his unit, F Special Company, one of the gas companies, was involved in that attack, providing a gas attack on the German positions around the chateau to assist with the New Zealand assault. Lowe had originally served as a sapper in the Royal Engineers at the beginning of the war. From Perth in Scotland, he'd been educated at Edinburgh University and came top of his year. As an ordinary soldier in the Royal Engineers serving with one of the gas units, he'd been awarded the military medal for the Hohenzollern craters in the spring of 1916 and a military cross for the use of gas on the Somme in the Battle of the Onk on the 13th of November 1916 and he was one of the very few British casualties in the New Zealand attack on Polderhirk Chateau on the 3rd of December 1917. There's a photograph of him in the Imperial War Museum photo archives, and I'll put that on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk, so you can see what he looked like. But standing in front of his grave, you immediately notice that there is no religious symbol on the grave, And this leads a lot of people to believe that the graves that you see like this are of men who had no faith whatsoever. Now that may well be true in some cases, but what is more commonplace is that these are men of religions that didn't necessarily use the cross as their symbol. And it's more common with Scottish soldiers than it is with soldiers from England, for example. So in the case of men who came from a Christian faith that had this approach... A cross was not engraved on the headstone unless the family specifically requested it. When you look at the New Zealand graves that are here, they're all from the Polderhirk Chateau sector, with the New Zealand Rifle Brigade and the Canterbury Regiment dominant amongst the burials. And the men from the West Riding Division who are here are largely from the 1st 5th Battalion, the York and Lancaster Regiment. Now this is a, a local battalion to me here in South Yorkshire. It was recruited largely from men from Barnsley and from Rotherham, They'd served alongside their sister battalion, the 1st 4th Hallamshires, who were recruited in Sheffield. And this particular unit uh, had been at the front since April 1915. And when you look at some of the casualties here, they are some of their early lads who joined up, often pre-war or at the beginning of the war, to serve. So there are both Barnsley and Rotherham men amongst the casualties that are in this cemetery. And that includes one of their officers, Captain Charles Frederick Willis, He was from Rotherham, he was an original member of the 1st 5th Battalion, came across to France in April 1915 and served with them in the gas attack along the Issa Canal in December of that year, then on the Somme at Thiepval on the first day and the fighting around the Schwaben Redoubt. Later with them in Flanders in the battles of Passchendaele, the third battle of Ypres, and survived all of that only to be killed in a quiet sector like this. The battalion war diary says that he'd just been promoted second in command of the battalion and looking at the other records that we've got of him he was a man who led by example and having taken over this difficult sector of outpost trenches from New Zealanders he was killed whilst doing the rounds in the line so he was going around making sure that his men were okay that the positions were as secure as they could be uh, and that everyone knew where the enemy was and were on full alert And in doing that, of course, in this exposed smash landscape that this battlefield was by the end of 1917 and the beginning of 1918, he was vulnerable and was killed doing his duty. Like so many Rotherham men who died in the ranks of the 1st, 5th York and Lanks, their local battalion, 
Captain Willis is recorded and remembered at home as well, at the Rotherham War Memorial in Clifton Park. Now as we wander around this cemetery and, and perhaps our eyes look at the strange polygon shape of the walls that surround the burials, we might notice that at the rear of the cemetery there is a gate, a gate that seems to lead nowhere. At one point, up until the 1950s, it led to another cemetery, not a British and Commonwealth cemetery, but a German one. This was a German battlefield cemetery known as the Kriegerfriedhof der Reserve Infantry Regiment No. 248 at Polygonenwald, as the Germans called it. So this was a, a Kriegerfriedhof, a warrior's cemetery. Uh, you remember from the episode that we had on Langemark, we spoke about the difference between Soldaten and Krieger, soldiers and warriors, and this is how the dead of Germany was depicted in the First World War as warriors. So this cemetery from the 248th Reserve Infantry Regiment was started by them in the early summer of 1915. This ground had been swept up in the Second Battle of Ypres in April and May, and this was now behind the German lines, some way from the actual front lines. And the 248th Reserve Infantry Regiments had been serving in the ground around Hoog on the Menin Road and on the Bellawada Ridge. Indeed, on the 16th of June 1915, British troops made an attack on their positions, and this regiment fought, for example, the Liverpool Scottish in that battle, which is where Captain Chavas, then Lieutenant Chavas, their medical officer, was awarded the Military Cross for his bravery. He would go on to be awarded the Victoria Cross twice by the time of his death in 1917. So the 248 Reserve Infantry Regiment started this cemetery around that time and quite likely buried some of their dead from that action at Bellawada here as well. But the burials continued right up to the approach of the Third Battle of Ypres, in 1917 and there was something like 330 odd burials here the exact figure doesn't appear to have been properly recorded for some reason and although there are quite a lot of postcards of the German cemeteries that existed around Langemark and Polkapel and on the Menin Road and, and other parts of the the battlefield images of this cemetery seem to be unusually rare but the ones that do survive show a large main wooden cross and that the graves themselves were individual wooden crosses. Some of them, on some of the early photographs, quite spectacular, which was not untypical of German cemeteries of that period. And it was a rectangular-shaped cemetery, so quite a narrow and long cemetery. So this gate would have once taken you through the British cemetery, along another path to the German cemetery beyond. But of course, when we look there now, the German cemetery is gone. In the 1950s, Again, you'll recall from the Langemark episode that we did, the German government and the Volksbund, the German War Graves Commission, decided to close the majority of German cemeteries like this and move them into Kameradengrab and comrades' graves or mass graves. Or alternatively, they would rebury them in another German cemetery that was being used as a concentration cemetery if space allowed. And, and these graves were moved to Block B at Langemark German Cemetery. So we'll leave this burial ground behind now and retrace our steps, walk back out through the entrance of the cemetery, cross the road and make our way into Polygon Wood itself. So as we come into the wood via this path we can see ahead of us a large mound with a memorial on top and through the trees to our right we can see the white splash of stone from another military cemetery. 
But before we continue, let's ask ourselves, what is polygon wood and how does it get its name? Well, the shape of the wood, when you look at wartime maps and aerial photographs, it's clearly a polygon shape, not a true polygon, but enough of one to give the wood its name. Before the Great War, the wood was owned by the Belgian government and it was used as a Belgian army training ground. Again, when you look at the wartime maps of the wood, there's a, a strange sort of circular shape in the middle of the woods. that is essentially a velodrome. It's an area where cavalry and horses marched round and round uh, in training. And the mound that we can see uh, ahead of us was part of a musketry range that was here that was used up until 1870 by the Belgian army for musketry practice. So they would fire their weapons on a firing range and the, the mound, the butte or the butte, would absorb the bullets that missed their targets or went through the targets. So the woods was a training ground, and although it might not have been as well used in 1914 as it had been in the 19th century, it was still owned by the Belgian army. And when I first used to come to Ypres in the 1980s, outside the area of the cemetery and memorial where we are now, the wood was completely inaccessible. It wasn't public land then which is quite hard for some modern visitors to the battlefields here to, to really understand. So you couldn't really go wandering around in the wood and see what was there. It's only in recent times that these woods have become truly public, which is a really good thing. So in 1914, the wood really had no particular military significance, although it ended up being part of the fighting for most of those four years of the conflict. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, further into the walk. But ahead of us, we can't but help see the big mound and the steps going up to the memorial on top. And this is a memorial to the 5th Australian Division. This is the last of the Australian divisions to be formed. It came across to the Western Front from Egypt in the early part of 1916. And its opening battle on the Western Front was the tragic and disastrous attack on Fromel in July 1916 with absolutely horrific casualties for this division. They went on to fight in other sectors of the Western Front on the Hindenburg Line in 1917 and then here in the Third Battle of Ypres later on that year. And when the division came to place its monuments on the battlefields and all of the five Australian divisions had a chance to do it, the obelisk that we see here was the standard design that was chosen but not every Australian division adopted that. So the 2nd Australian Division, their memorials at the Pozieres windmill sites um, and then at Mont Saint-Quentin near Peron are very different. But the 5th Australian followed this pattern and their former commander, Major General Sir John Hobbs, was the one that chose this site over from L. Now, partly I suspect because he was the commander in 1917 and 1918 after from L. But Fromel, of course, was not exactly a page of glory for this division. It wasn't that they failed, but it was an attack that had gone badly wrong and had cost this division dearly in 1916. So it's perhaps understandable that they wanted to place their divisional memorial here on ground that they successfully captured during that Third Battle of Ypres rather than a battle which essentially had been a failure. And the history of these Australian divisional memorials, I suppose, tells a, a wider story 
when you look at the deeds and the battles in which these units took part, how do you decide which battlefield to place your monument on? If you're only allowed one, uh, then which one do you choose? And this was a great problem, and, and no decision would ever have pleased everyone. If you were a veteran of Frommel, and that was your one and only battle because you'd been wounded and then discharged, you might have been aggrieved that the monument ended up here at Polygon Wood, or if you'd have served with the division later on in 1918, then you might have asked, well, why didn't we place the memorial there? So this whole aspect of commemoration and the politics behind commemoration, really, in terms of who do you please, is an interesting angle to these memorials from the Great War. Standing on the mound, the buttes looking down, we can see the cemetery beneath us. And this is the Butts New British Cemetery. This cemetery is not a, a wartime burial site like the previous one was. This is a specially created post-war concentration cemetery. When, in the 1920s, over 2,000 graves were moved into this area, mostly from the 1917 battlefields, so from the Third Battle of Eat period, but also some from 1914 actions around places like Zonabeek and the Menin Road. The burials total 1,283 British, 564 Australian, reflecting the Australian casualties in Polygon Wood in 1917, 139 New Zealanders from the later fighting around Polderhurk Chateau, 50 Canadians and 30 whose unit is not known. Of this total of 2,066 graves, 1,673 are unnamed. So that's four-fifths of the total are unknown soldiers. So this is a cemetery that clearly reflects the problems of post-war battlefield clearance. Bodies, the remains of soldiers, were found, but there was precious little on them to identify who they were, in some cases nationality, so when you wander around the rows of this cemetery you do see unknown Australian soldiers, unknown Canadians, New Zealanders, and then men from various British regiments who are not identified, but there just wasn't enough to give that man a name. And these were soldiers who died in that muddy morass that Eep was at that time, when proper burial was often almost impossible, and men who fell into shell holes or in trenches that got covered over by the huge amount of artillery that bombarded positions at that time. So buried, as is often described, by the fortunes of war, post-war when it came to clearing the ground on which their remains were found it proved almost impossible in most cases to properly identify these soldiers. But amongst the identified burials in this cemetery is the grave of Lieutenant Colonel Alan Humphrey Scott DSO of the 56th Battalion Australian Imperial Force. He was a, a 26-year-old battalion commander from New South Wales. He joined what was the equivalent of the Australian Territorials before the war as an officer and when the war broke out, he became a platoon commander in the 4th Battalion, AIF, and served with them at Gallipoli in 1915. His DSO, mentioned on his grave, was awarded at that time for his bravery in the fighting at Lone Pine. And following Gallipoli, he was later transferred to the 56th Battalion. He had a younger brother serving in the battalion as well, and he eventually became their commanding officer. So he was a man by 1917 of some experience had served with the Australians at Gallipoli and then on the Western Front in numerous actions. On the 26th of September 1917, his battalion had been one of those involved in the capture of Polygon Wood 
and there's a bunker that we'll see later on in the walk that is named after him in the area where his battalion was. But we'll see on his headstone that his date of death is the 1st of October, and buried not far away is Lieutenant Colonel Dudley Turnbull of the Manchester Regiment. The 56 were about to be relieved by the Manchesters by Turnbull's men, and Scott was showing Turnbull around the positions that his battalion was about to take over when they were spotted by what is said to have been a German sniper. Now, although by this stage of the war, even battalion commanders would often wear the ordinary Tommies uniforms and webbing equipment, often they had some little distinction that singled them out as being an officer, and perhaps someone on the other side of the battlefield realised this, and both men were shot dead. But these two are not the only battalion commanders buried here. In fact, it's unusual in that respect, this cemetery, that uh, it contains the graves of three men who commanded infantry battalions, the third being Major Charles Kemp DSO of the 21st Battalion of the Manchester Regiment, the Manchester Powers, killed commanding the 20th Battalion, who he'd just taken over. Kemp had been awarded his Distinguished Service Order for the Battle of Arras earlier in 1917, and he was killed the very next day after having taken command of the 20th Battalion. So what we see from graves like those of Scott and Turnbull and Kemp is that the life expectancy even of battalion commanders could be pretty short and that these men were not safe in dugouts behind their troops telling them what to do. They were often in the very front line looking after their men, ensuring that the positions could be properly held and that the right men were in the right places leading by example and that was an example that so tragically and so often cost men like these their lives as we see from these three graves. At the rear of the cemetery is a large column structure and it's not just a, a shelter uh, for people visiting the cemetery it is also a memorial to the missing, a New Zealand memorial to the missing. Its official title is the Butts New British Cemetery in brackets New Zealand Memorial. And the New Zealand government had a slightly different approach to the commemoration of their missing soldiers. Rather than add them to the big memorials to the missing that were being built, like the Menin Gates and the Thiepvale Memorial, the New Zealanders decided to have their own battle monuments on the sites where New Zealand soldiers had fought. There's one for them, for example, at Gallipoli, uh, at Chinook Bear, and then several on the Western Front at places like Caterpillar Valley, and Messines. This one here commemorates the dead of the New Zealand division from a specific period as they all do and then one monument rolls into another to continue with the commemoration of the missing from the different battles. So this one covers the dead from November 1917 until February 1918 and it covers that period uh, where the New Zealand division served in the area around Ypres largely at Polderhoek Chateau holding the line in what was then considered to be a quiet period of the Great War. During this time in the line, the New Zealand division lost 452 men killed in action and had 89 missing. But the memorial commemorates 348 men. So when you look at it, you can see that the majority of their dead from that period, a so-called quiet period, do not have known graves. And I think what that reflects is the nature of the grounds, that it was difficult to bury the dead. And of course, the following year, as 1917 merged into 1918, there would be more fighting in this area of the battlefield, first in the spring with the German offensives of April, and then in the Allied counter-offensives, the final and fourth Battle of Ypres 
in September and of October of 1918, and it's likely that many New Zealand graves, indeed many other graves, were lost during that period of the war. When we look at the panels of this memorial, we see that it's dominated by two particular regiments, the Otago regiments with 127 commemorations and the Canterbury regiment with 91. Pretty much all of these are men killed in December 1917 in that battle at Polderhurk Chateau. But generally, the majority of the men on here are killed just holding the line in those isolated positions out on the front line on the eastern edge of the battlefield during that cold winter of 1917-18. So this memorial ends with February 1918 commemorations and the continuation of the commemoration of New Zealand missing continues with the Gravillers Memorial down on the Somme. That's a tale for another day. Amongst the names that are on the memorial, and we think of New Zealand perhaps not as much of a country that had a lot of immigration before the First World War. When we look at Canada, 70% of the original Canadian Expeditionary Force were born in Britain. It wasn't as high as that in the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, but it was a country, as it does today, that attracts people from all over the world to go and live there. And one of the more unusual names on the memorial is the name of Rifleman Ratan Chand Mera of the 1st 3rd New Zealand Rifle Brigade, who was killed at Polderhurk Chateau on the 3rd of December 1917. He joined up at the very beginning of the war in 1914 and he served at Gallipoli and then on the Somme and his name gives us a clue. He wasn't born in New Zealand. He'd come to New Zealand from India. He lived at uh, Sutton Mandi in Rachapia, a bahol in the Punjab and he's one of a number of Indian-born servicemen that I've found who died not with the Indian Army, but died serving with regiments and corps of different Commonwealth forces, having emigrated from India to those countries. And to have a name like this, it's quite good when you come here with school groups that often have students from the British Indian community, and you can show them that men from India served in a wider context than just the Indian Army, and that they are represented on almost every battlefield of the Great War. We'll go through the memorial now, to the rear, with the cemetery behind us. And there's a gate here, a gate that takes us out of the cemetery and into one of the rides that cuts through this part of Polygon Wood. And here we'll continue with our walk. The ride that we're walking down is now the main central ride that comes through the middle of the wood, but the wood itself is crisscrossed with these. And these rides were built to allow access to the wood, to act as fire breaks. But that large circular-shaped velodrome ride that was cut through the middle of the wood to enable the training of cavalry before the Great War was never put back in place when this wood was replanted in the 1920s. As we walk down this central ride, it's worth thinking about the fighting that took place here in Polygon Wood, not just in the battles involving the Australians, because... With the exception of 1916, there was fighting here in the wood for almost every year of the war. In 1914, British soldiers dug in along the edge of the wood and fought in the fields beyond, as we'll see when we get to Blackwatch Corner uh, later on in this walk. In 1915, the German gas attack came through here and pushed the British back. British troops returned here in 1917, with Australians capturing the wood in the Third Battle of Ypres. And then the Germans captured this ground in April of 1918 in their final advance here in Flanders. And in the autumn 
of the same year, the Fourth Battle of Ypres, pushed the Germans back and this ground was finally liberated. By the time the conflict was over, nothing really remained of this wood. When we look at 1917 aerial photographs when the Australians were here, it was a matchstick wood really. There was just splintered trunks left from where the trees had been. And at ground level, the whole area here was just smashed to oblivion by artillery bombardments with shell crater after shell crater after shell crater. It was just one moonscape of shell craters from the artillery that had devastated this ground during the war. So despite the saturation of both high explosive and gas in woods like this, they did naturally begin to regrow. Man thinks himself all-powerful, but nature somehow recovers. But it needed a helping hand, and when we look at woods like this, they were deliberately replanted and assisted in that way in the post-war period, most of them, like this one, regaining their original shape and area. But as we walk down here and look amongst the trees, because of the nature of the bombardments here in the Great War, there is very little to see at ground level. You can see that this is pulverised ground because there are clear indications of shell holes and often overlapping shell holes amongst the, uh, the undergrowth. But there's very, very little signs of trenches. There's a couple of areas where some indentations may well be trenches from the Great War, but it's very, very difficult to tell. What there is in the wood is a series of concrete bunkers built by both the Germans and also Commonwealth troops as well. The largest of these is just down a side track to our right, and this is Scott's Post Bunker, named after Lieutenant Colonel Scott, whose grave we saw in the cemetery. His men captured this bunker in the September 1917 advance here. And again, I'll put some pictures of this and, and the other battlefield areas around Polygon Wood on the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk. Scott's post bunker is not an Australian bunker or a British bunker, it's a German one. And it was probably built here in 1916 when this was some distance from the front line. It's almost certainly a communications bunker, so a headquarters bunker, most likely for artillery units that were operating in this area at that time. So the heavy guns of the German army defending, for example, their frontline positions around Hoog and on the Belawada Ridge would have had their heavy artillery in this area, and this would have been the communications hub between the guns and observers on the front line. So it was built from that perspective, not necessarily a perspective of defence, so it's not a machine gun bunker. But what we can see when we stand here is that this bunker has taken uh, a lot of punishment from artillery fire, some of it no doubt from British and Australian guns in 1917, but also some of it from German artillery fire once this position had been captured. So if we go back to this idea of this essentially being a wasteland here with no protection from any surviving trees, a bunker like this would have been a huge and inviting target, knowing that there would be troops dug in around it or using it. No doubt once Australian troops and then the British troops who served here later were occupying this area, no doubt it would have received a lot of attention. It would have effectively, as soldiers would have said at the time, have become a shell magnet and not a place that many of them would want to linger, I wouldn't have thought. So given that big bunkers like this were pretty conspicuous targets, when it came to placing bunkers here during that winter of 1917-18, to 18, and that task was done by 
the New Zealand engineers of the New Zealand division, they chose for much smaller bunkers, small shelters or command posts that would be dug down into the ground where the roof was almost flush with the landscape so they wouldn't be up above ground level uh, and therefore easy targets for the Germans. And in the wood itself, that makes the finding of these types of bunkers now a somewhat uh, more difficult prospect. But if we return to the track and then turn right and continue down through the wood, there is one just up on the left-hand side at the junction of a couple of, of these rides that criss-cross the wood. So we'll stop to have a look at that. And it's a curved roof. Um, it's only a small bunker uh, and it's designed for a handful of men. It's probably a company command post or for a specific unit that was here, perhaps trench mortars or machine gunners. Uh, and it gives us a good example of, of the type of British bunker and British and Commonwealth bunker that was constructed at that time. But we'll continue down the path, the ride now, to almost the end. And when we get there, we'll stop and we'll turn around and we'll look back straight down that ride back towards the cemetery and the 5th Australian Division Memorial and we're looking now across and through the trees of the ground where the Australian attack took place here in 1917. This attack took place on the 26th of September 1917 in one of the stages of the 3rd Battle of Ypres. The attack was made by two separate Australian divisions, the 4th and the 5th, and the assault went in at 5.50am on that day. The men fought their way following the bombardment through the wood and over this difficult ground of shell holes and smashed trees and the stumps of trees and the bunkers with German defenders within them became some of the obstacles they had to break their way through to achieve success here on the battlefields. While Scott's bunker was a, a command bunker and not a machine gun bunker, you could of course put machine guns up on the roof and there's evidence that the Germans did do this but there were also a number of tiered machine gun bunkers in and around Polygon Wood and these caused quite heavy casualties to the Australians as they moved forward. The Australian attack was generally pretty successful but on their right the British units advancing there had much greater difficulties and that left a little bit of an open flank for the Australians which they had to secure to keep the woods in their hands before they were eventually relieved. But despite it being a successful operation, often these battles cost units dear, and the Australians suffered 15,000 casualties, killed, wounded and missing, in the operations for Polygon Wood. So it became another part of the Western Front, bathed in Australian blood. So we'll go out the far end of the wood now, just round the little wooden barrier, out onto the roads, and ahead of us we can see a large bronze memorial, and we're now at Black Watch Corner, and that'll be our next stop. Where we've come out, this corner of the woods joins a road, the Uda Kortriekstraat, and it's a road that runs from the Menin Road right across this part of the battlefield, past places like uh, Nonaboshan, for example, past Polygon Wood, and up towards the Brunzinder Ridge. But this area became known as Black Watch Corner following the fighting here in the first Battle of Ypres of November of 1914. At that particular point, on the 11th of November 1914, this was at the tail end of the first Battle of Ypres, there was a key moment here when the fragments of the units that had been defending this ground were assembled along the edge of Polygon Wood and across this ground where we're standing now, 
commanded by Brigadier General Fitz Clarence VC. Fitz Clarence was a, a brigade commander, so he was in charge of four infantry battalions. But by this stage in the battle, there was very little left of the original strength of those four units. And following the loss of some senior officers in a command meeting at the Hoog Chateau earlier in the First Battle of Ypres, he found himself uh, appointed, uh, as he described it, as the officer commanding men in road. So commanding a, a wider unit than he normally would, uh, but being one of those on the grounds who helped influence the defence of these positions at that time, at that key moment in the fighting of 1914. On the 11th of November, the positions here, which included ground defended by the 1st Battalion, the Black Watch, which is how this corner gets its name, were attacked by what some accounts called gigantic men of the Prussian Guards. In fact, one account says that these men were so big that when they picked up wounded from the Prussian Guards, the British stretchers they had were too small to accommodate these wounded German soldiers and evacuate them off the battlefield. I think that's a little bit of wartime poetic license, really. But nevertheless, these were some of the elite regiments of the German army, and they were in much greater strength than some of the defending British units. So the fighting here was both bitter and intense on that morning of the 11th of November. The positions where the memorial now stands were defended by two companies of the Black Watch who were entrenched here. And of course, these were not like trenches of later on in the war. They were more firing positions with some earth thrown up to give some protection for the men behind it. But their positions were very quickly overrun by the advance of these Prussian guards and behind them the remnants of the battalion defending a strong point which had been dug for them by the Royal Engineers, one of the early examples of a British strong point on the Western Front. Close by was the battalion headquarters as well. This held out and the battalion commander and cooks and officers' servants found themselves being part of the defence here as well. But the Black Watch held its ground and the Prussian Guard attack was repulsed with heavy losses. And heavy losses too amongst the Black Watch. Only two officers and 109 men walked away from this battle. So it became that regiment's key moment really from the fighting here in 1914. For a long while its only monuments was the name given to this part of the battlefield. And then during the centenary of the Great War this magnificent bronze statue, I think one of the best memorials placed on the battlefields during that centenary period, was placed here on the centenary of the fighting involving the men of the Black Watch. He stands there looking defiance across the battlefields where so many men from this famous regiment fell, not just in the year 1914, but in subsequent battles here around Ypres during the four years of the First World War. But like I said at the very beginning of this walk, when you stand here on the ground around Ypres and you look into any given field, you've almost got the entire history of the war in that one field. And while this memorial commemorates an action of 1914, there were other battles on this site. And on the 26th of September 1917, while the Australians were attacking Polygon Wood, the men of the 2nd Battalion, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, were making an advance on this ground. Now we've got a lot of information about the 2nd Royal Welsh Fusiliers because a number of famous individuals serve with them. Siegfried Sassoon, Robert Graves, two of the war poets as an example of it. 
Uh, Frank Richards, who wrote an account of the war called Old Soldiers Never Die, which is one of the best ordinary soldiers' accounts of the war, he too served in this battalion. And Captain J.C. Dunn, the medical officer of the battalion, published a book called The War the Infantry Knew, which is where he collected together the stories of men who'd served in the battalion and wrote this incredibly detailed account of what the battalion had done. But he missed out one particular story relating to the ground where we are now. We know something of this story from Frank Richards in Old Soldiers Never Die. So what happened here that day that uh, led to Dunn excluding it from this history that he wrote? Well, the attack had gone in on the 26th of September and the commanding officer, the second in command and the adjutant had all become casualties. Most of the company commanders had become casualties and what was left was a small group of young and very inexperienced officers where it was clear that they didn't have the experience and perhaps determination under the circumstances necessary to continue to lead the battalion forward or even help protect it from any German counter-attack. So at that point, Captain Dunn, who was the regimental medical officer, his task was to tend the wounded, not to fight in battles. Technically, as a medical officer, he was prohibited from doing so. He had to make a decision Now, Dunn had served in the ranks in the Boer War. He'd been awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal for his his bravery. And because of his own combat experience, he realised what a critical situation the battalion was in. So it is said that he tore off his Royal Army Medical Corps collar badges from his uniform and threw them into the mud, picked up a rifle and took command of the battalion, saving it, saving the day. For this bravery, he received no decoration. In many respects, men like Richards, for example, believe that Dunn should have been awarded the Victoria Cross for that day. But technically, he'd broken his covenant as a medical officer. And for that, perhaps the military authorities felt that he could not be rewarded. For Dunn, when you read between the lines of the man that he was, James Dunn was not a man to solicit praise And I think that the fact that he did his duty as and when required would have been enough for him. But it's an interesting story. And Richards himself, who was here by this stage of the war, was a highly decorated soldier, having been awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal and the Military Medal as a signaller with the 2nd Battalion. And those books by Richards, Old Soldiers Never Die and The War the Infantry Knew, are really highly recommended reading incredible books, incredible detail about the experience of one infantry battalion on the Western Front. So we'll bid our farewell to this soldier of the Black Watch. We'll return to the road, the Uderkortriekstraat, and we'll turn right, keeping the wood on our left, and we'll walk past two farms on our right and come to a corner of the wood on our left and then another farm on the left-hand side. And just past that, there's a little track on our right that goes across the fields and we'll walk out onto that track and stop on the rise of the ground. Ahead of us, the ground dips down into a little valley, and this is the valley of the Reutelbeek, a stream that runs through this part of the battlefield. And here we have a great view across this part of the battlefield where the Polderhurk Chateau once stood, and where the New Zealanders fought in December of 1917. And this is where we'll end our walk.
The Polderhurk Chateau that once stood on the other side of this valley of the Reutelbeek was built in the mid-19th century. It was called the Flower Castle by local people. It was set in a little area of woodland without buildings and it was covered with flowers. War came to it in 1914 and eventually it was captured in the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915 and was used extensively by the Germans. I've got a, a very good German contemporary postcard of it which I'll put on the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk. The whole area of the chateau covered about 30 hectares and by 1917, at the tail end of the Battle of Passchendaele, it was still in German hands. On the 3rd of December 1917, the New Zealand division that had just taken over this sector did a two-battalion attack on the chateau to try and push the Germans back. These battalions of the Otago Regiment and the Canterbury Regiment sent two companies forward side by side to try and bite off the little salient that the chateau uh, caused. It was a bright and frosty morning, but the Germans had a lot of pillboxes here built into some of the rubble of the chateau buildings, but also separate pillbox constructions, and they inflicted heavy losses on the advancing New Zealand soldiers. Private Henry James Nicholas of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force was awarded the Victoria Cross, for example, on this day for taking out a 16-man strongpoint on his own, putting that out of action, enabling the men from his Canterbury Regiment to continue with their advance. Henry Nicholas survived this engagement and went to Buckingham Palace to be presented with the Victoria Cross for his bravery by King George V, but he returned to the front and was killed near Le Quesnoy in October 1918, so sadly never returned home to his native Christchurch. This was a battle that cost the New Zealanders over 500 casualties, with more than 100 dead. A small-scale action, but a costly one, and we have seen many of the soldiers who fell in this action, both in the cemeteries that we've walked through and on the New Zealand Memorial in Polygon Wood. The chateau was never rebuilt. After the war, the owners of chateaus like this were given compensation by the Belgian government. And the owner of this one, Octave de Landas, just decided not to rebuild it after the war, so the ground on which it stood is now agricultural land, a ground so hotly contested during the years of the First World War. But while the New Zealand action here took place in December of 1917, there had been many previous engagements along this area of the Royal Beak Stream. And I think, when I stand here, of two veterans that I knew and interviewed in the 1980s and 90s. These were Ron Short, MC, and Hugh Perry Morris, MM. Ron Short was a, a Sussex lad. He was born in Eastbourne and he'd enlisted originally in the 11th Royal Sussex, the 1st South Downs Battalions, and had been wounded in the fighting at Rishborg on the 30th of June 1916. He'd later got a, a commission in the Queen's Royal West Surreys, and he'd served with them on the Hindenburg Line in the fighting around Arras, and then here at the Reutelbeek in the Third Battle of Ypres. He was subsequently awarded his military cross for bravery in the fighting in this area in October of 1917, during that Third Battle of Ypres. He went on to then serve in Italy in the final phase of the war with the 2nd Battalion, the Queen's Regiment. And he said that coming out of what he described as the swamp of Passchendaele and being sent off to Italy, it was like being sent on a holiday. 
The horrors of this battlefield were very difficult for him, despite being an educated man, to really articulate the, the morass and the shell holes and the utter desolation. It was something that often stopped him dead in his tracks when he was talking about it. And Hugh Parry Morris, who was not far away from him with the Honourable Artillery Company, he was awarded the Military Medal for his bravery here in the fighting along the Reutelbeek at around about the same sort of time in October of 1917. And he too went on to Italy for the final phase of the war. But it's Ron Short's description and the way he described this ground that I'll always remember. He said to me, lads, you have no idea how bad it was there how bad the mud was, how exposed we were in those positions, and we felt as if we were no longer on an earthly plane. Somehow we were somewhere else. It resembled nothing like we'd ever seen before and would thankfully ever see again. And when he said that, he would he would go quiet and he would pause, and I could see that his mind was back in this valley, back around the Reutel Beak, thinking of the men that he'd taken into action that day who perhaps never returned. And when we stand here today and we see this plush landscape of Flanders returned as it should be to agriculture, to farming, it's once again a place where people live their lives and are happy and content. And that can only be a good thing. So when we stand here, we reflect on these things. We think, perhaps of the accounts of men like Ron Short, who knew this ground when death stalked their paths at every opportunity, who saw it at its worst. And I guess that's the power of places like this, the power, the connection that we have to the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>